Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, as we record on Thursday, November 5th, corporate media headlines would have you think it's still a legitimately tight race for president because they're holding up Biden's larger number of votes and delegates alongside Trump's efforts to huff and puff and blow the House down. Media that are so invested in a balanced, bipartisan frame that even after election 2020, they refuse to focus on the bigger break between those who believe at least a little in the Democratic project and those who do not are part of the problem. We'll talk around them with Stephen Rosenfeld, editor-in-chief correspondent of Voting Booth, a project of the Independent Media Institute. Also on the show, Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash spent the most money on a ballot initiative in U.S. history, more than $200 million, to push through California's Proposition 22 so that they can keep pretending their drivers don't want benefits because they have so much freedom. It has grave implications for all gig workers, but if you want to know what they think, skip reports like the day after New York Times write-up, which found no workers to talk to, but did manage to get hold of Uber's chief executive, a venture capitalist advisor to Uber, and the industry campaign's press release. We'll get a different view from Ray Fuentes, Scadden Fellow at the Partnership for Working Families and co-author of the report, Rigging the Gig. That's coming up. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. It is November 5th, and the New York Times front page tells me that Joe Biden sees a path to victory. The reason it's just a path, I'm to understand, is that Donald Trump is still mounting challenges to vote counts. Trump, of course, announced in advance that, quote, as soon as that election is over, we're going in with our lawyers, close quote. But Republicans didn't just start going in with their lawyers. In particular, since the gutting of the Voting Rights Act in 2013, they've used the courts to provide cover for the kind of voter suppression they feel favors them. They've played these cards face up for so long, it's hard to see why anyone would credit Trump's current legal maneuvers as anything other than what they are. Frank attempts to hold on to power no matter what. But here we are, and where we need a press corps that defends democratic functions unflinchingly, even or especially if it's the president attacking them, what we've got is, along with some strong and useful reporting, a lot of normalizing inanity, like CNN's John Avlon telling viewers to keep cool and remember that the right to vote is really the fight to vote. Come again? Things are changing as we speak, but joining us to talk about where we're at is journalist Stephen Rosenfeld. He's the editor and chief correspondent of Voting Booth, a project of the Independent Media Institute. He joins us now by phone from San Francisco. Welcome back to Counterspin, Stephen Rosenfeld. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, let's spend a minute on the encouraging aspects of this election process. The highest turnout ever 
due to massive mobilizations and groundwork? And and also, isn't it to the COVID responsive expansion of the ways that we were able to vote? Yes, that's really true. That's been mostly lost in the anxiety over what the result or the outcome will be. But the country since March went through one of the biggest changes in political culture in decades, and that is tens of millions of people voting from home or getting ballots in the mail and then finding ways to deliver them. And if you take a look at the statistics, state after state, the turnouts were just the highest they've ever been. And that is really remarkable against this context where there was more litigation than ever to basically complicate the process in the eight or ten possible swing battleground states. So it's really quite an an achievement. And public education and voter education and voters, they deserve some credit for basically not being uh, discouraged. Right. Well, as we record on November 5th, Trump hasn't let go of the strategy of what the press called legal challenges, which I feel is kind of fancy language for what's happening. Without asking you to break down each individual case, What should we understand about the nature of the legal arguments being employed here? Well, sure. There are two big points to make about this without getting lost in the details. The first is that most of what Trump and the Republican Party are going after are small technicalities in the process of the way that ballots are handled or processed before they're counted and then counted. And what's really remarkable about these, and I've been looking at this today, is that the number of ballots that they might be able to throw out, if they are even lucky to succeed, and we can say in a second why they may not be lucky, it's really small, and it's not likely to jeopardize or change the outcomes in these elections. It's likely to generate a lot of doubt that could be blown up like molehills into mountains for their ongoing disinformation. But in terms of the litigation, it's been incredibly small-minded and kind of sloppy. Like, it should have been filed days ago, but was only filed yesterday or even today, today being Thursday. So in terms of the narrative or the legal arguments, there are only a few. There's really Bush v. Gore 2.0, which means they're claiming that like ballots are not being treated in a like manner. Well, what does that mean? It means that counties aren't doing the same thing step-by-step as other counties. And when you have states like Pennsylvania, where different counties have different voting technology, and they have different training for poll workers and all, things don't get done like robots. So that's an old claim, and it's not gotten that much traction. The next one, which is a little bit more consequential, because there are four Supreme Court justices, conservatives, who said this is a way you can come back to us, was basically claiming that only state legislatures have the authority to regulate elections. And they say this comes out of the federal constitution, Articles 1 and 2, time, place, and manner. That's the phrase. The problem with that is that it basically ignores everybody else. (laughs) So who's everybody else? Governors, secretaries of state, state constitutions, state supreme courts. (laughs) But we will see how that might come into play. Where it would come into play in this election is in Pennsylvania and North Carolina and Minnesota. 
the deadline to accept ballots that were postmarked by Tuesday, Election Day, was extended, but not by the legislature. So the question is, are those ballots going to be disqualified? And um, in Pennsylvania, they're being separated. They're being handled separately to basically put them in a pile that doesn't jeopardize the rest. And then the third and final area where they're making these really nitpicky kind of claims is they're basically claiming that, hey, we're not being allowed to see the process or watch the process or, oh, my gosh, we weren't there when a ballot that came in that had coffee spilled on it was duplicated. So, therefore, everything else can't be trusted. So the, the big picture here is, and I'm trying to write about this today, actually, is the numbers of ballots that could be thrown out, if, if they're successful, they're really nibbling around the edges. So what is this mostly doing? It's mostly building up evidence to try to discredit the results in the disinformation and social media and propaganda world. Right. Well, and speaking of propaganda and into media, when Donald Trump said he was going to try to stop vote counting, stop them counting votes in Pennsylvania and Michigan, the Washington Post said that that move threatens the ability of people to exercise their rights the foundations of representative government. No, it, quote, threatens to draw out the final stages of the contest against Joe Biden, close quote. That blasé language, you know, the reporting of the shutting of polls in black neighborhoods, of lying robocalls, of fake drop boxes, of hijacking the USPS, reporting all of that as though it were a strategy and not an outrage, I think also goes towards ensuring more of the same, yeah? I think you're right about that. You know, we've become so, I don't want to say normalized, maybe numbed is a better word, to, to, you know, these kinds of tactics as if, well, this is just the way elections are run. The thing that's really crazy about this, with these kinds of claims, I mean, there was something in the paper today, the Justice Department had a memo, they might send armed guards in. The truth is, ever since the Republicans it went after the Voting Rights Act, and they gutted it. The Supreme Court gutted it in 2013. There is even less federal authority to even be present. Now, these elections are state-regulated. They are not regulated by the federal government, with the exception of you know, the amendments that say women can vote and people of age 18 and stuff like that. So the thing is, they have less authority than they ever had. Most of the authorities they do have are to enforce civil rights laws, which this administration obviously is not interested in doing. But these kinds of threats make it to the front page of the New York Times. Right. That's what's crazy about this, because it just sucks up the oxygen for a more, like, a, like creating context. What would that context be, by the way? It would basically say, for example, these lawsuits are incredibly rinky-dink. Let me give you one example. A friend of mine who was an election attorney was called to help represent the city of Detroit because they were sued. A lawsuit was filed yesterday to try to stop them from counting the votes. It was filed after the counting had stopped already. So this morning, they're only trying to go back into court, they being the Republicans, to say, oh, no, we want to amend the suit, so we're suing the county because it's the county that certifies or makes the results official. So it's that ham-handed. But in the meantime... You know, they're just making all this noise about, you know, how unfair and how it's being stolen and this, that, and the other. And the press could be a little clearer on what really matters here. Yeah. You asked recently in a piece, 
if Trump doesn't win legitimately, who will stop him from seizing power illegitimately? And these past four years have been a lesson in uh, so many things, but in the kind of frailty or fungibility or uh, of the something of U.S. institutions, you know, and I'm wondering going forward, first of all, we have to keep an eye on this smokescreen, this kind of throw everything at it and see what sticks and see what gets traction in the press that the GOP are doing. In terms of the voting process, what pieces do you think need structural shoring up rather than just hoping that no one else tries to abuse them in the way that the Trump White House has? What should change or what might need to change in the structure of the voting process to protect us? Well, that's really simple to answer. There's a new generation of voting technology that's basically being used everywhere across the country. It starts with paper ballots in most places that are marked by ink pens. But the way that votes are actually counted is they're put through a scanner and a digital image is made of every ballot. And then that begins the process of correlating, you know, the the dots you fill in with candidates and all. And so what I'm trying to say here is there is a much bigger body of data and records that could be used to very quickly get a sense of are the votes being counted accurately. And if you want to go in and fight about things that are, are not particularly clear, you can create, using those images, a library to find the paper and have an entirely different process, like a jury. And then people can really see and judge the evidence themselves. They don't have to be told by any expert to trust us. We've been speaking with Stephen Rosenfeld. He's editor-in-chief correspondent of Voting Booth. That's a project of the Independent Media Institute. Stephen Rosenfeld, thank you so much for bringing us up to date this week on Counterspin. Thank you so much for having me. Proposition 22, or the Protect App-Based Drivers and Services Act, passed in California on November 3rd after what the New York Times glossed as a, quote, really, really expensive battle over the future of work, close quote. In reality, the spending was quite one-sided. Companies including Uber and Lyft spent $205 million, the most costly ballot initiative campaign in U.S. history, on something they obviously felt was worth it, a measure to allow them to keep flouting labor law and classifying their drivers as independent contractors rather than employees. And a battle over the future of work, well, it's true, is a kind of antiseptic way to describe a plan that leaves actual workers, human beings, without basic benefits others have, like health care, sick leave, overtime, or recourse against discrimination. Uber employees complained of being strong-armed into voicing support for the initiative, and even California Uber customers were forced to navigate through Prop 22 propaganda to use the app. Why such aggression for a move the company swear is good for everyone? Seems like a question for a critical press corps. We'll learn more now from Ray Fuentes. He's a Skadden Fellow at the Partnership for Working Families and author, with Rebecca Smith and Brian Chen, of the report Rigging the Gig, how Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash's ballot initiative would put corporations above the law and steal wages, benefits, and protections from California workers. He joins us now by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome to Counterspin, Ray Fuentes. It's so wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. 
Well, there are a number of disheartening aspects here. What Prop 22 does, to whom, how it came about, what it could lead to. But I wonder if I could ask you first to address this core idea that undergirds so much of the conversation, that companies like Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash don't have to behave like other employers because their workers are happy to trade employment benefits for the flexibility of when or whether to work. What does that leave out or distort about the reality of these workers and this industry? Yeah, unfortunately, it is a corporate myth. It's something designed by corporations as a way to win a public relations campaign with people who don't work for their company. I think as we have discussed throughout this campaign and now up until including these votes being tallied on Proposition 22, really trying to reach out to California voters to really describe what we know just based on a plain reading of the proposition will be the impacts on California workers. The challenging part is that we know that these app-based workers are primarily immigrants, people of color, and for the people that we've worked most closely with, subsistence wage earners. These are people who work full-time on these applications but struggle to survive in California's economy. And what has undergirded the protections for most workers in California are baseline rights, things like access to paid sick leave, unemployment insurance when COVID-19 hit. These are things that have been absent to most of these gig workers since they've started working for these companies. And it's only been this you know, recent grappling in this country with our history of race with the COVID-19 pandemic that many workers started to realize that these protections are actually so vital to them that they should begin organizing and working together to ensure that they are protected. And so Proposition 22 is clearly a backlash to these recent victories that workers have had. And, you know, the idea that these workers would prefer to not have access to paid sick leave if they fall ill or need to care for a family member or that they wouldn't want the protections of unemployment insurance if they lose their job through no fault of their own, to me, is quite galling. Right. Prop 22 is the response, if you will, as you've just indicated, to state labor law, which listeners might know about, AB5, that would have required these companies to classify drivers as employees. But before they put together Prop 22, they just straight up refused to comply with the law. Isn't that right? They're really irresponsible behavior when it comes to California law has been embedded in the DNA of these companies since their founding and since they started operating in California. They've flouted employment law that has been on the books, you know, since 2010, 2012. Whenever each one of these companies started operating, they've decided that their workers were independent contractors. But under any conceivable state law test, these workers have been employees for the purposes of state law which means they should be getting the things like basic minimum wage protections and overtime. And, you know, AB5 just crystallized the conversation. And more important than anything else, AB5 authorized public officials like the attorney general and city attorneys around California and large cities to enforce these obligations. You know, the companies have designed a web of private arbitrations, which prevent workers from going to court and really barely adjudicating what are the results of their employee classification and what wages they're owed. And so because these companies have evaded kind of enforcement in the past, the fact that AB5 authorized public officials to enforce 
and the fact that they started to bring lawsuits against these companies is what created the urgency to pass Proposition 22 and to really spread so much misinformation about what the proposition actually contains. This is what makes me so irritated with the way media can report these things. The New York Times on November 4th has the statement, quote, the passage of Prop 22 is a bitter loss for state and local officials who have long seen the ride-hailing companies as obstinate upstarts that shrugged off any effort to make them follow the rules, close quote. So here you have the simple fact that they've been flouting rules, but it's presented as the sour grapes viewpoint of losers, you know. Well, just taking up the point that you've just introduced about AB5 introducing a a lever, you know, for legislators to use to intervene to protect workers, as bad as the lead up to Prop 22 is, you know, but wait, there's more. Uh, The proposition also includes a provision that pretty much ties the hands, doesn't it, of legislators who might want to change what it does. That's what we think is is the worst component of the ballot initiative. Really, actually, two things that have not received as much attention as possible. And again, the quick efforts by these companies to spin the, the narrative as something about protecting employee freedom and independence and protecting flexibility have really provided the type of misdirection that has prevented people from realizing that Exactly as you described, the proposition contains a seven-eighth supermajority vote requirement. So if the legislature in the future wants to expand rights for these workers or wants to ensure that some other protections are provided, they will be unable to do so unless they get a seven-eighths majority vote of the state legislature. And I heard somebody say something pretty funny, but horrible in this situation, but you couldn't get a seven-eighths majority vote for a uh, Happy Mother's Day proclamation from the state legislature. So it's difficult to imagine important social legislation protecting workers passing by that threshold in our current legislature. And the other thing that it does that I think it was also underreported was the fact that it now preempts or cancels any local law that would protect workers and regulate things like local wages, access to tips, or insurance requirements for drivers, you know, all the things that local governments are best suited to do in their jurisdiction, they now do not have the power to do it because the ballot initiative preempts those laws. So they've essentially knocked out any way to change the law from the top or any way to improve it from localities on the ground. So that's why we've described it as an attempt to essentially deregulate these industries. And at least as of Tuesday, they were successful, but I don't think the fight ends there. I'm going to bring you back to continuing the fight, but let me just ask you one point that the report deals with extensively, because to the extent that folks are going to read news accounts about this, they're often going to include a line that says, okay, but the companies are offering some limited benefits, some benefit concessions. They are, you know, offering workers something. Rigging the gig talks about that. If you could briefly tell us what's going on there. Yeah, the companies have suggested, and I think hyperbolically, as we now understand that the proposition contains historic new benefits, you know, rights to um, some health care insurance premium assistance, a wage guarantee, discrimination protections. But as we've described, these things are far less generous than current law. And so that's what we were comparing it to when we wrote our report, because that's what the law was. And these companies had decided they wouldn't comply with it. But more to the point, even the benefits that companies suggest are contained in the ballot proposition are really just 
not going to be sufficient for workers in their day-to-day lives. So, for example, the ballot initiative intends to offer a health care premium to workers, and it suggests you could get up to 100% of uh, the average ACA contribution covered if you work over 25 hours in a week. Unfortunately, they suggest that those are only 25 engaged hours, and we know many workers spend a third to a half of their time waiting for a ride. So they actually have to end up working almost 40 hours or more to receive this health care insurance guarantee, but it's also tied to the lowest cost health care plan uncovered California, and it's not their actual premium expenses. It's some average that hasn't even been disclosed by Covered California. So at the end of the day, and I know that was a complicated description of what was happening, but really just to sum it all up, the company suggested they're offering a new historic healthcare guarantee. When you read the fine print, very few workers will be able to access it, and those who do will access insurance that is not adequate to cover what they'll be facing. Well, finally, the New York Times had a chilling statement that Prop 22, quote, opens a path for the companies to remake labor laws throughout the country, close quote. But it can, I'm hearing you say, still be fought and will still be fought. I think one of the things that is important to recognize is that this force by the company, their effort to pass a ballot initiative like this, has not defeated workers and, in fact, has done quite the opposite. We've seen the most explosive and energetic worker organizing on the ground that has ever been present in the in the gig community and in, in workers who are working for Uber, Lyft, Instacart, DoorDash, who now recognize very clearly what is at stake and have started to very articulately you know, cut through the company's messaging. You know, a lot of workers who had started working for these companies when they were first founded, were earning a pretty good wage and sufficient earnings for themselves to maintain a living. But the companies flooded the market, they started cutting rates, and now workers understand very clearly that the companies were holding them really hostage on the job and leaving them without many alternatives. And so this Proposition 22 fight has actually energized organizing in a way that I've really never seen before. And so that's what's an exciting component about this is that workers are more engaged rather than less engaged. And so that's a one thing that is going to be absolutely critical in the fights ahead. But the other component is just really testing the ballot initiative, you know, really ensuring that it is lawful, it is constitutional in California, that it has, you know, all the features that are necessary to really actually be California law. And so I think that's an important conversation. It's one I don't want to get ahead of the moment. I mean, we're really only two days past the election, but I think it will be important to recognize that this fight and this conversation in California is not over. We've been speaking with Ray Fuentes of the Partnership for Working Families. You can find their work online at forworkingfamilies.org. Ray Fuentes, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find them on our website, fair.org. The show's engineered by Erica Rosado. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.